Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm Simon Sweetman, I'm the host, and this is episode 49. I uh, sat down and had a wonderful chat with um, Paulie Barner-Jones. Um, hopefully you know his music, you'll get to hear some of it, little snippets underneath underneath our conversation, um, and some at the beginning and the end, hopefully. And, uh, you know, yeah, hopefully you've heard of him and, and seen him play, because he's been touring the country for close to 30 years, and he's been out there every summer and all through the year. He's opened for, well, we talk about a lot of this in the podcast, obviously, but he's opened for a bunch of international names. Um, he's done his own tours. He's um, He was part of the last Waltz 40th anniversary concert that was done in New Zealand at the end of last year. In fact, it's right around the time of that that this conversation was recorded. Um, Paul's a friend. I met him through basically going to his gigs. Uh, I was such a fan at an early age, you know, high school, university, that we used to travel around the country and go and see him. Um, me and my good buddy Ben Fulton, who is an earlier episode of this podcast, Ben gets mentioned on, in, in this, um, we would travel around the North Island and go and see Paul play. And we'd end up, you know, like little, kind of like little groupies waiting around to have a chat afterwards. And uh, through that, we've sort of struck up a friendship and um, never miss a chance to see Paul play. Uh, simply one of the great musicians, I think. And uh, I know bits and pieces of his biography and his story. I've, I've interviewed him formally over the years and also had these, you know, informal chats. But this one was a really great one for me because we got into a bit of, we got into some territory I hadn't hadn't covered with him previously. So I think even if you've heard him interviewed or read interviews with him and seen him play, there'll hopefully be a lot here for you um, to, to check out. Uh, a, a lot of wisdom, a lot of insight, a lot of reflection and... Um, you know, I just think the guy's a real talent, so hopefully uh, this leads more people to his music if you haven't heard of him or haven't checked in with him in a while. Uh, so this is me talking to Paulie Barner-Jones, and this is Sweetman Podcast, and you, uh, you're you hearing this because of the fine people at Phantom Bill Stickers supporting us, also Lafare for coffee, and Yeasty Boys give us some beer. So I I'm trying to think how we start this off, because you and I have um, have hung out a wee bit over the years, mm. and we've, we've also done the more formal interviews mm. a few times. That's right. Um, so I'll probably ask you a few things I've already asked you. Sure. Uh, I've probably forgotten them. Hopefully you have too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I just want to sort of get a bit of a, I guess a bit of a sense of, of what you do and why you do it. That's really, overall, that's really the aim for me with this podcast is to talk to people about what they do and also why they do it. And then, and then within that, some of the experiences yeah. they've had along the way. Sure, makes sense. So... Um, do you want to start at the beginning, or do you want to start at now and go backwards? What do you want to do? Uh, start at the beginning is okay. always good. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, I guess I always want, I always wanted to do music from a very early age, due to the fact we lived in such a confined space and want some of the in southeast London. Yeah, and the early highlights were when my dad had enough work because he was working these terrible jobs, being a black African, his English was atrocious just doing menial work mm. and my mum was trying to fill out the cracks and that we're getting some cleaning work so some of the highlights on their little income was they'd buy a single or buy a, a second-hand album mm. from the local market East Lane Market in South East London and um, we had a radio so there were music was in a funny way an integral part mm. in our family household and um, 
and they'd buy some tunes and uh, albums and it struck me this is really really beautiful from a very early age uh, you know crazy stuff like um, uh, Jim Reeves or yeah. uh, some really cheesy Nat King Cole mind you he's really good stuff I believe yeah, yeah. came later yeah yeah so this kind of hit me from the age of seven. And you're experiencing this as a family. That's right. So it was it. really yeah. like a, a focus point for mm. all of us every weekend. Eating um, food uh, at the table, listening to the radio, or putting that little 45 on or that 33 album. Yeah. And as that, as that went on, I, I mean, I was in the hospital for a year. I had rheumatic fever. I was flat out on the bed. I had the last rites as a Catholic boy. And so movement was absolutely banned. It was absolute rest. They actually had a sign on the front of the door of my hospital cubicle. And so what did he do? I'd listen to this radio that was in my room, listen to music all the time. Mm. So when I came out, that music kind of spirit started to grow in me. And I, I remember my mother saving some money to try and pay for my first singing lesson, which was catastrophic. She took me right across London. Uh, I brought a single with me that I liked at that time. And we went to this singing school. And this guy looked at us as we walked in, big grand piano and wooden floorboards. And obviously they had much more money than what we ever did. Mm. And he said, right, what would you like to sing? And I said, I've got this record. He said, yes, I'd like to sing along to that. You know, mm. he was totally blitzed by that. Mm. So he put this record on and I started singing to it. He didn't know what to say. So mm. my mother said, so what do you think? Do you think he's got talent? He said, I don't really know. He's got to learn some songs without the record. <laughs> so that was the, one of the first artists to do backing tracks, I guess, you know, <laughs> at South East London. That's my claim. And um, so from that point onwards, so that, oh, now I was hitting junior school, got my first guitar when I was 11, yeah. started shrum shrum and, um, then my eldest brother brought home an EP of Bob Dylan and that really took me. It was four songs from Freewheeling Bob Dylan. It had When the Ship Comes In and Karina uh, Karina. Oh, and I thought, right, that's what I want to do with my life. And that was the real beginning of the story, I think, of the, the kind of journey of strumming the guitar and trying to So, learn. when do you, so, I was going to say, for you, is it all about, to begin with, you get a guitar and it's really to accompany yourself. Like, the aim is to be a singer, to convey stories yeah, and songs. Absolutely. And that Dylan record would have um, cemented that, and also, are you already starting to listen out for lyrics and, yeah. and stories, and that's what absolutely. singing is about, putting across stories? Absolutely. And I had a guitar. I yeah. on a golf course uh, Saturday and Sunday, and the money, it was on lay-by, the money got to the music shop Monday morning, my mother took that there, mm. and within a couple of months I had my first guitar to strum, mm. and so when I heard that Dylan EP, mm. it was like another guy, famous, yeah. just strumming away on a guitar, and what words and stories, yeah. and it was so, it was so um, engulfing, it just sucked me up totally. So what's the next really big musical moment for you, is it seeing Dylan? Because you've told me about that before. Yeah, it that's, was uh, two years later when I was, I was going to say, third. you're quite young. That's you? right. Two years later, which would have been 1960, uh, uh, um, let me see now, <laughs> 65, you go and see him at the Royal Albert Hall. That's right. So I'm at the Royal Albert Hall. And, and this it, is right around the whole going electric. That's right. Right in the middle of that. And uh, apparently uh, Pete Seeger tried to 
chop up the um, you know the electronic uh, the electric generators at the Newport Folk Festival <laughs> yeah, yeah. with an axe. Yeah, yeah. There's a man who's always preaching <laughs> and singing beautiful songs about peace. peace. And, and Get the got, axe. Yeah. So he got the axe out. Anyway, Dylan just absolutely nailed it in the first half. You could hear a pin drop. Ten thousand yeah. people doing those songs yeah, off that record. You that's heard, right. That sort of oh, thing. It was just too much. Yeah. And um, and then we witnessed something really revolutionary. And the second half, he came out electric with the band and uh, backing him on these Johnny's in the basement, mixing up the ma- medicine. Yeah. The subterranean homesick blues, all that stuff. Maggie's farm. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And um, people throwing cans at him and things and leaving the front seats. And we ran down a big spiral staircase of the Royal Albert Hall and got those wonderful, expensive seats and witnessed <laughs> Dylan's electric yeah. uh, character beginning. It was great. So all this stuff was part of that initial journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of cementing for me many reasons why I wanted to do. What do you do as a 13-year-old that goes home from uh, a Dylan show? You go home and live with that show in your head for how long? Oh, forever. It's it's still still there there now for you, isn't it? I'm 65 shortly. Still there. I think that's the power of music, though, isn't it? Yeah. You know, your first classical concert or your first time you see a, a real blues artist. Yeah, yeah. Wow, it's, it's mind blowing. Yeah. You never get over it, really. Yeah, yeah. So when do you when do you get on the stage yourself, or when do you get write a song yourself, or what's the what's that next step for you? Uh, I think the writing thing started quite early for me, a couple of years after um, having my first guitar, just trying things out yeah. that didn't make sense or yeah. things, little ditties that actually came together, all stuck around two or three chords. Mm. And then, funny enough, by the time I was in the second year of high school, there was this local folk club and we, I had some friends at high school that also had their guitars and we'd learned some Beatles songs, which yeah. were quite difficult at the time had a great music teacher that showed us what an augmented chord was, mm. a diminished chord, which the Beatles were using in their songs, mm. minor sevenths. And we thought, wow. So the best place to try them was in the high school lunch hour in the canteen. Sometimes we'd get a gig just playing our songs mm. on the stage whilst everyone's eating this awful council food. Mm. Or go to the folk club on a Friday night and do your first performances really nervous. Mm. That, that kind of ran in parallel with trying to start to write a few songs yourself. Mm-mm. So it kind of worked itself nicely, getting over stage fright, and also then maybe trying out your own tunes. And you start seeing, you're still in London, so you start seeing more and more of these, like, heroes. Oh, yeah. You know, you get to see Oh yes. these big-name people. Big names. And uh, I think from the age of 13, I saw the animals. That yep. blew me away. We, we, we uh, managed to get to see them down Marble Arch. And it was a Ready Steady Go show with the winners of Ready Steady Go. And this was the live music show every Friday night. Yeah. Live bands playing in the TV studio. Awesome. Feedback, everything. Yeah. It wasn't pre-recorded. And, of course, Hendrix was on there a little bit later. So the animals were on and um, we had some money and we could go and see them for about a dollar, five dollars or four dollars or something. And... Eric Burden just blew me away. Everyone was hanging out for House of the Rising Sun. Yeah. He did a mega, mega performance. He had huge lungs mm. and he just belted it out. And that was, oh, that that cemented again me wanting to pursue the road of music. Mm. It's interesting hearing these, hearing you talk about this stuff and just in my mind I'm thinking, you, when you, you know, you said that concert still lives with you, but I'm thinking, yeah, of course, you, 
you still play Bob Dylan songs. You yeah. still play House of the Rising That's Sun. Right. You still play songs by and about Jimi Hendrix. You've written right. about him. Yeah. You've also covered him. Yeah. Um, and these are still pa- can be parts of your set. You know? Indelible. Yeah. Indelible. Yeah. I don't think they'll Amazing. ever change. I think as I get older, they'll... they'll get a bit more refined I don't mm. mean with shirt and tie stuff yeah uh, just my delivery and maybe my articulation and um, just um, translation in mm. as much as you you paint a slightly different landscape mm-hmm. every time you play it you know and I think that might might be a question of coming with time that you, allows you to do things like that so you also start studying classical music yeah when I've, does that happen because that's uh, something that I, th- I think maybe some of the people that uh, unless you've talked about it on stage, which I guess you have now, then there's probably people that have been listening to your music that don't maybe know that about you. Yeah, well, I think we. Um, it was in that period I was going to acoustic clubs and electric club bands clubs. The bands being every Friday night at the mm. Marquee, mm. the famous Marquee, mm. Jethro Tull, Emerson, uh, Keith Emerson in the Nice. Um, all these bands were doing it, and it was great to be there. Mm. Uh, the Taste, Rory Gallagher, and at that very at uh, the same time, I was going to acoustic clubs, Les, Cous- Les Cousins, they call it. It should have been pronounced Les Cousins. Yeah. In Soho. 13, 14 years of age. I was big enough, so they really didn't question my age. Yeah. And I always got home really late. <laughs> and I'd go and see people like Bert Jensch, uh, John Martin, slightly later. But Bert Jensch in 66, 67. Um, David Graham, Martin Carfein, these were acoustic players yeah. in a small, dingy basement cellar with one SM57 <laughs> microphone that would feedback. Yeah. And it was just awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Seeing these great players. Yeah. Open tunings and all that stuff. So there was there was the other thing I was going to ask you is when, do, when does, uh, and I feel like that's right then, but when does the idea of the guitar coming becoming more than just a thing to strum and accompany your words it take get, on for you when, when do you get the idea you could be an instrumentalist as that's seeing right. those guys seeing those guys exactly. the Yanch yeah. Rembles yeah. David Grahams yeah. uh, the John Martins and then on one particular occasion there was an opening act for one of the artists can't remember which one and it was a classical guitar duo mm. it was a guy a Armenian guy called Gilbert Biberian who turned out to become a great uh, modern classical guitar composer and composer mm. and the other guy he was playing with was a white South African guy called Timothy Walker whom John, John Rembourne had, had lessons off of and I saw this duo mm. and they were playing Bach transcriptions of Bach pieces and classical from the classical school uh, Giuliani and people like this blew me away mm. I went up to Barbarian afterwards and I said I really love what you played I've heard some classical guitar music and I'd like to learn techniques required. He said, oh, that's not a problem. Um, I do an evening class at the City Literary Institute in Drury Lane, Mm. um, which was easy for me because I was doing a terrible job very nearby. Every Friday night, come along. So I took my still string uh, guitar along. He didn't mind that. Everybody else had a nylon string at that stage. Mm. And um, learning to read guitar music, being part of an ensemble, learning your part, simple stuff, Mm. but you're playing stuff from the um, 16th century, Baroque stuff, that he'd um, rearranged for 10 guitars. Oh, it's just another world, it was glorious. So I pursued that, 
as well as carrying on my bluesy acoustic stuff, pursued that, pursued that. And he said to me, why don't you, uh, I think he sensed the talent in me. He said, why don't you bring your reading skills up to a, a, um, a national standard, grade six? Mm. He said, there's other classes at this literary institute that you can attend, night evening classes. I did that. So I got grade six. And then, due to my job, my apprenticeship that I was doing at the time, which I didn't finish, which is good news, um, I had enough money a week to have at least one lesson from Gilbert Barbarian, a private lesson on guitar. And, um, and that increased. I progressed really well. And he said, you've got to go on the full-time music course. Do this, do that, do this. You have to get your playing skills now up to grade six at least. Mm. And um, I did that with his assistance. And I couldn't afford the lessons all the time. So he cut me a really great deal. So do you come here on Saturdays and clean my house? Like do all the hoovering, do the mm. dishes. Mm. He's always giving lessons and teaching and mm. concerts. You clean my house, I'll give you an hour's guitar lesson, which is what he did. And we became great friends. And uh, that went on for two years. Age 18, I wow. applied yep. for a full-time music course. And one of the prerequisites is you have to bring on your instrument, mine was guitar, mm. you bring your own compositions that you've written down mm. for your what you, on your instrument mm. and you show your knowledge of uh, um, um, music theory and the examinations will be based in those areas. Mm. Got my audition, first sight reading, singing sight reading and then playing sight reading and then playing one, of your, one or two of your compositions mm. and I got accepted, mm. couldn't afford the fees, applied for a scholarship, got a scholarship and uh, my fees were paid, my travel from where I live, South East London, all the way over to West London, uh, Chiswick. And uh, did three years. Yep. It was great. And during that three years, I took up as a second instrument cello. Mm, mm. So it was, it was kind of like what was coming into fruition was having knowledge of a bigger landscape, not just that acoustic world, which I still love very much, mm. but having a landscape of Barenboim, of uh, you know, Leonard Bernstein, going yeah. to classical concerts even more and more, because for me, it was all the same language. Yeah, and I suppose you're in, it's in that time when you're starting to become aware of things like um, Incredible String Band and Pentangle oh. and all those oh. sorts of things that are yes. that are part classical, part psychedelic right. rock, part folk, yeah. and so you're swirling yeah. in those worlds yourself as a listener and, and, and as a performer as well you, you've got it absolutely Simon yeah. and ironically John Rimble went mm. back to uh, music school uh, later on in his professional career after the zenith of Pentangle mm. and he did a degree in composition <laughs> yeah right you know, yeah. and some of his albums are just you know that renaissance mm. fusion mm. you know with these blues jazz mm. uh, crossover wow mm. unique mm. So what happens when you finish school? Oh, what do I go through now? Yeah. Oh, bands, bad bands, just to get money and get out of those atrocious jobs. Yeah. Atrocious jobs. I joined the soul band, reggae band, bad gigs, not getting paid, guys that would beat you up if you asked for your money, all sorts. I actually got in a really nice jazz combo and this really big Jamaican guy had a Hammond uh, uh, C3 organ and he was really good at the Jimmy Smith stuff. And I was the guitar player with a tenor sax player and a, and a drummer. 
and he never paid us. I only did four or five gigs with him. Mm. He couldn't get money from him. Got mm. out of that, got into a soul band, uh, covers, soul band, Otis Redding stuff, James Brown, as a, lead, as a rhythm guitarist. I didn't really, I didn't really excel in the lead guitar playing. Um, and got, we got a six month contract in Greece with the Delroy Williams Soul Explosion. And that was money, hotels, mm. the, 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 playing six nights a week. Mm. Um, after that, the roof of the hotel fell in and, and, and that contract was curtailed, <laughs> came back to London, what do I do now? Look for some other bands. Mm. Some worked, some didn't. And then finally, we were now getting into, so music school was 70 to 73. Yeah, I was going to say this is mid-70s. Really that's right, like, mid-70s, yeah. got out of those soul explosions and those uh, sort of second-rate funky things. And my writing had gotten to the level where I was meeting sax players that wanted to play my material. So mm. I worked with this guy called Bob Peachy, a sax. He played tenor and alto, and he played electric harps. Mm. Great, because that means we've got a bigger sense of repertoire mm. we can work. Mm. Met a, we auditioned um, a Brazilian guy in percussion, João Bosco de Oliveira from Brazil. We uh, auditioned a contrabassist, double bass player, Richard Green, on on bass, and that was it. And the name of the band was Ubana. Mm. So we had guitar, me singing and playing acoustic, plugged in steel strings. Bob and wind and harps, Bosco double bass. Yeah. We used to silence the audiences in pubs in London because yeah. they're all like full kits and everything. Yeah, yeah. And we were doing this more kind of, you know, counter rhythm stuff. And I was uh, listening to Gil Scott Heron a lot then. And we'd mm. do Home is Where the Hatred Is. Mm. We'd do um, The Revolution and Will Not Be Televised. We'd do Lady Day, John Coltrane. Yeah. There was a lot of stuff we could morph into who we were. More stuff that stayed with you oh, to this day, yeah. yeah More stuff so. that's still part of your repertoire so. that you dial up if you that's want right. to. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. The only yeah. thing with, say, something like Home is Where the Hatred is now, I really like doing it a cappella. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then it was with the group, and right. it was still great. Yeah. This guy came up to us in that era, Simon, he said, All right, hey, you guys, I really love what you're doing. I ain't queer, I'm not gay, right? But I'm going to give you 700 quid. We went, What? 700 pounds in 1978. What? He said, Go in the studio and make yourself a fucking recording, because you need to. <laughs> So, yeah, okay, mate. <laughs> he had an antique shop down Chelsea, right down Chelsea. Uh, and we thought, better not mess with him. We yeah. better, better not do a runner with yeah, 700 yeah, quid, yeah. otherwise he'd get the Cray Brothers after us yeah. or whoever. And so we went in the studio, we cut four or five tracks. That got us a lot of work. We got mm. small little festivals in East London. Got us gigs into wee jazz festivals that were weren't really festivals out on big luscious lawns but in what connection did you have with that guy after that did that remain or no just a we he came to a couple of gigs we gave him the recording we got a yeah. tape of the recording never saw him again wow it, it's like he was passing through yeah and he was pleased that we did do the recording <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah didn't um wow misuse his money and you but, didn't get shoulder tapped down the track no you didn't no. you know nothing <laughs> Took it around to some places, wow. took it to EMI, took it to uh, various record companies, ones that we just yeah. knew wouldn't be interested, but we yeah. thought we'd try out. Yeah. And uh, no luck there. Uh, but at least it consolidated to the point where we had something that was there, mm. presentable. Mm. I still got the tapes. Mm. Um, so that was good. That was a big change. After that, 
the uh, Jao Bosco, the percussionist, had um, been offered this big gig with a Brazilian review that was being based in West London, Pluty nightclubs, mm. six month contract. No, he couldn't. He said, I'm sorry, guys, but I need the money. Yeah. Great wages, mm. well, better than what we could mm. possibly uh, come up with. So we lost Jao. The double bass player got a gig up in Scotland doing TV work for Radio Glasgow or somewhere, and other things in his life had changed. Lost him, tried to replace the bass, uh, so it wasn't the same. Stripped down to a duo with Bob Peachy, Bob playing blues harp and mm. going like Albert Ayler and John Coltrane, wild stuff on sax in my songs. Mm. And we thought, this is not working, is it? <laughs> so Bob moved on and I thought, what am I going to do? And I thought, oh man. And then a mate from the music school saw me playing this awful gig. I hadn't seen him for a good five years, since 73, and he said, Paul, what are you doing? I mean, I had, we met up for a drink. Nick Vlahavis, he said, listen, Paul, I've got this gig in the south of France, and funny enough, I've got this beautiful Revox recording thing, you know, like mm. reel-to-reel, Swiss mm. Revox. He said, and this Australian company want me to do soundtrack guitar music to a doco about dolphins. He said, you interested? Two guitars, we could overdub and things. I said, well, yeah. So I thought, this is your chance out of London, Paul. Mm. So I got someone to take up my flat, all that stuff, sorted out, tidied up the business, on a train, down to on a bus rather, down to the south of France. And um, when he met me at the bus station, um, he went like this, bottle of local wine. We drove from Avignon to where he was, Saint-Pentaleon, in the Vaucluse. And as soon as I got out of that car, so swimming pool, he was looking after this house in the south of France mm. and all these naked ladies jumping in there out of the pool. It wasn't like a sex orgy place. Mm. It was just like so fucking hot that nobody wore clothes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, that was a trip in my life. I thought, yeah. okay, let's start this, get into this pool. And we started recording. And that was my venture out of the UK scene, now based in Europe. And I never went back. And when do you get to New Zealand? What, well, what year do you arrive? We came here? in eighty-seven. Yeah, that's so, what I thought it was mid-eighties. Yeah. And so what? So what happens between so in Europe? In South, well, what happened was South of France fizzled out after one and a half years, couple mm. of years, and I went to the States mm. to chase up an old girlfriend that I lived with in South East London. Mm. Didn't work out. Mm. Lived in in um, initially in, I lived in Monterey. Used to play these Sunday gigs. Not so good. Moved on to um, San Francisco yep. and stayed there. I lasted 10 months in the States and I had to leave. I, f I found it too race-driven. Right. Race yeah. from my auditions at black blues clubs, race from um, white American gigs, you know, yeah, more yeah. folky things. Yeah. I hated it. 10 months. And I went back to um, Europe, back to France, met this Swiss woman... And she said, oh, why don't you come and live with me in Vetsicon? She's a lovely lady. And so I went up there. She was a kindergarten teacher. And she kicked me out after three months. You know, I was taking, drinking all the wine that was in the basement and just playing at home, going down the Niederdorfer red light um, part of Zurich, getting the last train back to her apartment, smelling like I'd been in every bar because I was yeah. drinking lots of schnapps. 
smoking hundreds of cigarettes a day. Well, not hundreds, but yeah. she said, oh, you smell like you've been in every bar in Zurich. It got too much for her. So she put me in this other house <laughs> with people more aligned to my disposition. <laughs> yeah. Got on really well there. But a woman that was teaching art at a high school, her mate came over. And this woman who became my wife. Mm. And uh, so I lived in Switzerland from 80 to 87. And yeah. at seven years, she became my wife. She became the mother of our first two children. And she became my agent, phoning up, because my Swiss German wasn't good enough to make yeah. the calls. Yeah. And um, they all spoke English, but she said, it'll open more doors if it's done in Swiss. And yeah, and so 80, 87, two kids, we wanted to change. So we thought, what, what? What was the decision to come here, though? You want to change, but how do you pick New Zealand? Oh, well, that was... What New, was Zealand, the New Zealand was a secondary thing. The primary thing was Australia. Right. We were looking at Australia, Sydney to start with. Yeah. And we tried it, and it, it was shite. It was really bad. You know, I was playing three-hour gigs for $70, you know. Mm. I thought, no, this is going back. I did yeah. all that in London. No way. And it wasn't working. And it, no, it wasn't gelling. So we went, had to go back to Switzerland. My wife took up more teaching. Mm. I got a few more gigs again, and we thought we'd go to a different part of Australia, Byron Bay, which is more, mm. a bit more open, a bit freer. Mm. But for an additional $90, you could go to um, New Zealand for six weeks. We came here, we loved it. Auckland, people seemed to love what I was doing. Mm. Andy Kay from the Glue Pot was giving me opening gigs in the corner bar. Mm. You know, I first sourced the live music gigs in the newspaper every Friday night. Uh, Russell Crowe's um, old hangout and cafe, the performance cafe, Simon Street. I was getting gigs there. Oh, you want to come back next Saturday? Want to do Friday night? You know, it was 50 mm. bucks here and there, but at least it, the interest was building up. Mm. And we thought, stuff Australia to stay here. People were more embracing, yeah. more open to the genres that I was crossing over with in my style of music. Yeah. You're not really doing it right, are you, mate? Yeah. You know, you get a lot of criticism in Australia in those days about your genre. Do you think, was there a race issue in Australia too? Silent. Yeah. It was silent racism. Yeah, yeah. In not, fact, some Not of the, as overt as America, no, but... No, no way, but it was there. But well, yeah, it would have been yeah. overt if, it, if I'd been Aboriginal, but yes. they heard me talk. Yeah. Uh, silent. Um, in fact, some guys that saw me play or got me to... Uh, I ended up opening up for them. Blues Bus was one of them in Sydney. Mm. Uh, I hung out with them having beers and that and Sunday afternoons before and after the gigs. And they said, hey, Paul, you, you, must, know, you must be aware of the politics of Australia towards uh, black Australians, Aboriginals, and people of your colour. I said, yeah, I'm aware of that. And they told me some awful stories mm. that I wasn't aware of. Mm. And uh, it was silent, and it still is silent mm. in Australia. A lot of people have moved on from that, but. Mm. Um, I've worked Australia for 12 years in WA and um, it was very hard to go forward. Mm. And I stopped playing there now. I, mm. I just don't go just there. Don't and I stopped that last year. Right, right, um, so that recently, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've played, fair enough, I've played the Blues Festival four times in Byron Bay, but it didn't go any further. I actually mm. opened up for Buddy Guy, 10,000 people, 70 mm. minutes set. Seemingly, tons loved it. Mm. But, uh, Cite that to agents. I was the guy. I'm yeah, really good, mate. Mm. No, they wouldn't pick you up, or didn't pick me up. And mm. I know, I know, I've got the muscle just as good as anybody else that's a soloist in Australia. Mm. Mm. So me and my wife used to ask, 
can you get bypass for guys that use stomp boxes all the time and mm. this and that mm. that don't have your flair and technique they're, mm. they're razzle dazzle them with volume and slide guitar you know and mm. uh, it seemed to be a. I didn't fit into the mould, mm. and and also there's this this real f subtle thread of racism that's still endemic in Australian society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still there. There are a lot of great Australians that are trying to counter it, but wheels move slow in that department. Yeah. So you're you're the opposite to sort of that is that you're welcomed in New Zealand. You've got opportunities. You yeah. played loads of gigs. Yeah. And Within about a year of being here, you released your first record. That's right, which Trevor Reek here at Pagan Records. So how does that come about? Um, is that just through doing all those Auckland shows yes, and getting spotted? Yeah, and not not quite. Uh, I was spotted first when Gary McCormick took me on tour yeah. in, 80, in late 87, early 88 for the, for the um, orientation of early 88. Mm. And it's there that this woman... Orientation in Christchurch saw me play Barbara Cuttance and she became my manager. Mm. She loved what I was doing and she then started to make advances to record companies, Sony and all that, and Pagan Records. And, and so that act that you've got down that's on that, that's on that first record yeah. and that you've been doing leading up to that is essentially the act that you still have, like you've got You've changed it around. You've got loads of repertoire, yeah. your own songs and covers, and you continue to write songs. But you've existed in that shape essentially. That's right. Since then, and and how honed was that when you came to New Zealand? Was that the act that you were doing for those last few years in Europe? Was, uh, that, the, was that the start of it at least? I mean, that was the start of it. But it, yeah, it seemed to have. So it sort of cements in New Zealand. Yes, yeah, it, it definitely at. cemented in New Zealand, yeah. and um, it cemented in a manner where. Any time I took that kind of repertoire on on tour, it was still very much wanted, which taught me that, well, if you're going to do it like this, then give it in different ways. Mm. So they'll be more susceptible to other stuff that you bring on board. Mm. You're not just going to be cemented in this one format, you know. Mm. And New Zealand's been very, very um, um, embracing in as much as you're a soloist. They still want to hear the raga. They still want to yes. hear lots of other stuff. But and they like the way that you play it there and then. It doesn't have to be four square. Mm. And I like that. You know, but that's sort of thing. Like that first album's got the raga on it. It's got Mountain your version, song. Mountain song, your version of um, Hoochie Coochie Man. That's right. Those are staples of your shows. Not Hoochie Coochie Man, funny enough. Or have been. Have like, been, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't play Not that so as much, much now. now. Yeah. But I'm, I'm thinking like 10 years ago, that's 20 right. years ago. Absolutely. They Daddy were... Don't Live Anymore. Yeah. People always wanted that. Yeah. And uh, of course, when that album was out in New Zealand, uh, released in New Zealand, it won two New Zealand Music Awards. Yeah. And it got me foot in my foot through the doorway of Canadian festivals and, mm -hmm. and American agents. So that mm. was good. So it did, it did great things, and that was New Zealand, you know? So you've got a couple of kids. Four kids. No, but at this oh, point, you first, yeah, 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 you've got a couple of kids, your wife, you settle where? Whereabouts uh, in, in that Zealand? era? Yeah. Settled initially in Raglan. Yeah. And then only for 18 months. No, 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 six, seven months. Gary McCormick offered us over to discuss a tour at the end of that year and then the first orientation in 88. So we then 
went to Gisborne and fell in love with it and we ended up living there for four years. Yeah. Love Gizzy and that was my base, Gizzy. Yeah, yeah. So all those other tours came. Because that's, that's, I think, when I first started listening to you and first heard of you and you were always sort of touring the schools and that's right. everywhere, the pubs yeah. obviously as well. Yeah. I wasn't old enough to go to the pubs, but <laughs> um, through the school stuff, I, I, I knew you, but you were very much um, synonymous with Gisborne. Yep. To at least to begin with, yeah. yeah. So, and then what? What makes the change out of Gisborne? Um, not, not Gisborne as as such. We found it very embracing, very warm beach life, and all that stuff. Yeah. It was, but the third kid was born there. Shadi was born there. Oko and Aisha were born in Switzerland. Yeah. And they were now of the age about the schooling thing. Yeah. Five, six, and seven years of age. And we've always had this kind of um, uh, propensity for an education for our kids, which is broad spectrum enough, but at the same time has a reality uh, connection with the spiritual essence of nature, of human human essence. And we found that in um, uh, Rudolf Steiner's education. Yeah, you know? right. So we had to make a quantum leap uh, from Gizzy down to Christchurch because that's where the Steiner School kindergarten, middle school and high school was yeah, yeah. and so we gave it some thought thought we're giving up a nice house in Gizzy and all our friends there but we made that move and you've been there ever since? yeah pretty much like we ended a bit, up, of, bit of travel around yeah, and stuff absolutely you, we ended up in Upper Mutra after Gizzy but that was only for because I got offered this job as an interim thing at the Nelson School of Music, which was terrible. Teaching kids guitar after high school, they come to the School of Music, mm. none of them wanted to learn. Right. Out of a hundred students, I'd say five were serious. So I did it for less time than the contract, got out of that, mm. and then we did the final leap down to Christchurch. And so you, you've got the first record, and then and you just played the shows, and then that sort of, like become dictates what you do for quite a while like That's you right. put a couple more records out yeah. every sort of two three four years yeah and just you just keep doing these shows and That's then right. i'm thinking like when do you sort of get the when do you get the leap to doing uh opening for a bunch of internationals does that happen almost as soon as you're over here or did that take a bit of time uh it happened quicker than what i thought yeah like, ian mcgann of concert promotions um heard about me and this and that and this and I got a phone call I thought when's the next time you have in Auckland I said oh yeah so when I was up playing the glue pot or something like that um, uh, he offered me Lady Smith Black Mombasa mm. the African connection he said we're aware that mm. your dad was from Nigeria these guys are from South Africa they're a cappello ten piece I knew, I knew them mm. and um, I got that gig on that tour uh, so I had, um, you know, a 45 minute set, six, seven concerts throughout New Zealand. And from that, Ian McGann again gave me, he said, there's something bigger coming up. I'll be in touch with you. He gave me 12 dates with Crowded House, mm. you know, opening up. I said, uh, it was Crowded House with Schnell Fenster. And I said, Ian, can I request something? He said, what? I said, I don't want to be the opening act. Can you please put me in the middle? I really want full focus from the audience who are waiting for Crowded House. I don't want to just be the soloist and that's yeah, it. Yeah. And he went with his pencil. How much are you after? 
and I had a figure already in my head, how many concerts we talking? Simple mathematics, I said this plus GST, he went, okay, you got it. <laughs> it was all done like that, Yeah, it was great. Yeah. And uh, so I got on that tour and I got full focus because wow. I was middle. I didn't know you played those shows. Yeah. I, I mean, I didn't see them, but I'm, uh, I'm such a Schnellf Insta fan that I sort of uh, think a lot about how those shows would have been great yeah. with Crowded House as well. Yeah. It was great for me because I yeah. got really good write-ups. Yeah. It was... It was um, and it makes sense to be that juxtaposition between or that, you know, between two bands yeah. as well. Yeah. Like, not just for you personally yeah. to get, get an audience, but it's a nice break-up in the... Absolutely. Yeah. I had to stay really strong in that tour because they weren't particularly nice to me in that tour. No, I bet there's a lot of... I had uh, Australian um, roadies saying, say the fuck again, mate. Yeah. It reminded me of the Sydney days. Yeah, yeah. These were the guys that, uh, you know, Neil Finn and his management had hired, you know, yeah, brought them yeah. over. I didn't, I didn't get any friendly vibe from uh, Neil and yeah. his brother. Yeah. I found to be quite arrogant towards me. Mm. Um, and Chanel Fenster, it was really clicky. Yeah. You know, I was this singular guy travelling on the bus. Well, they, I and, didn't and, exist. And both bands shared the history of Split Ends. Yeah, you sure, know, like, so sure. they, I mean, in sure. terms of their kind of, their standing with the audience Absolutely. and in their own minds. Yeah. yeah. But they couldn't even accommodate saying, it's good you're on the tour, mate. Yeah, yeah. Nobody said that. The only yeah. guy that was really friendly to me and he got on stage and played with me, Mm. Uh, was um, the guy unfortunately that topped himself the drummer Paul mm -hmm. Hester mm. Um, yeah that was a funny tour I, I didn't like uh, their attitude towards an artist that was on the show on his own mm. there was uh, it was bad I, I I lost a lot of respect for those guys interesting yeah and once um, I was in the car park uh, in Wellington before the Wellington show Tom Scott uh, I, Tom Scott phoned me and said are you free lunch? Do you want to come out to my house? Mm. Somewhere in the hills. Mm. Mm. I said, yeah, Tom. So I went down to the rental car and um, Neil Finn was walking in the car park. He said, oh, where are you going, Paul? I said, I'm going to see Tom Scott. And he went, Tom Scott, the caricaturist. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I come? And I thought, why shouldn't I let you come? Mm. You wouldn't take me anywhere. It's a split second in my head. Mm. And I thought, yeah, all right. We get the Toms, Tom opens the door and he sees Neil Finn there as well. He went, hi Paul. Oh, hi Nin. Neil. In we go, gives us a drink each. Neil Finn talked about himself non-stop. Mm. Paul McCartney in Abbey Road Studios non-stop. That's fine. Mm -hmm. That's great to have achieved that. Mm. But he pushed me out of the conversation totally. I thought, what the fuck am I doing here? I was invited here mm -hmm. and I brought you along. And mm. I thought, that says a lot about you, mate. Mm. So that's what I got from that tour. Well, you've had, because I was going to say, like, I mean, in, in, in my lifetime of watching you play, you're obviously a very good person to have as an opening act because you can play to a bunch of different audiences. What you do is not rooted in any one mm. particular genre or if it even if it is in someone's mind it's adaptable yeah because i'm thinking just off the top of my head i've seen you open for what uh Nat natalie cole kim yeah. moe that's right um bb uh, king dora jones bb yeah. king um bob dylan and patty yeah. smith that's right um some others too I'm sure uh, quite yeah. a few yeah and um, Womack and Womack yeah and the different uh, did you do Tuck and Patty as yes, well I, I think did. somewhere well like, yeah yeah that was so yeah so like um, 
and I've seen most of those shows and then there are other ones I'm aware of that you've done and I was thinking like not only we'll get into this a bit but not only have you got some some of them I've heard some interesting stories about how you're treated like what you're saying with mm. that um, I seem to recall you told me that uh, Patty Smith was very good to you on that she Dylan was, tour she yeah. was gorgeous yeah really gorgeous she, she invited me to their table to yeah. eat with them her and her band because you're in that situation where sometimes you're less than the hired help yeah and other times people recognise that you're in it for the same reasons as them right. or they recognise your talent you know yeah. they, they respond to that or whatever yeah. so sometimes you're treated almost like a kid yeah. but other times you just shuffled out the that's door right. like you're a guest right. I, I, my, my edit is uh, uh, if somebody was on my show well when people are cheering the show yeah. off, I've helped them get the gigs mm. you know there's a respect a mm. respectability there and that's that you're and, in it together you're doing the same you thing got essentially it, you're you've got to it push the fame and fortune yeah. aside we're talking about human yeah yeah and um, some people have it Natalie Cole denied me from singing that's right I remember that because I couldn't we turned up just as you were uh, <laughs> playing and I couldn't believe that I th- you played a 20 minute instrumental I did yeah. I did a 20 minute raga yeah <laughs> and, I, and it was fucking great but then it was only like the next day or something I think I might have even got in contact with you to ask what that was about or shortly after it and, you, right. and you said like oh, you know yeah. I didn't want a cigarette or whatever. Well, well, the agent who got me that was an Australian guy, and um, who I just finished with uh, last year, <laughs> and, and this years ago, and um, he didn't he didn't know that, mm. so I took the gig, um, and the band. When I heard that I can't sing, I said to her, Ben, does she usually do this? And he went, didn't say a word because her MD was yeah, in the yeah. other room doors always open on a jar so they can hear all the goss you know <laughs> oh, no. she was pretty good you know she was pretty good but it did she did instantly exude and I, I was just going to that as a job I'm, yeah. I, you know that was just I could have taken or left it and I thought it was a pretty good show and she did a really good job but she did instantly exude that classic diva attitude so when you said what happened it was like (laughs) oh yeah this this person does not want even the even the vague possibility of being upstage like it's just not an option I mean I quite like the idea that um, you know an instrumentalist opens for a singer or a, a band opens for a solo act and, and that you mix it up a bit yeah. but like yeah you should be in the position of, of uh, knowing that before you get there would have helped <laughs> yeah never mind that's, yeah. that's crazy it's a crazy world isn't it yeah. and so and there are also these things like so you get to play three shows around New Zealand with Bob Dylan and then his that you mean that uh, concert in the 60s in London is such a formative experience for you you don't ever imagine that you're going to be sharing a bill with someone like that, yeah. I, I don't, would think. You don't, you don't, you don't. Like, um, you, know, you know, my dad coming from Africa didn't know what he was looking towards, um, looking for a new life and ended oh, up in the Second World War and ships and got torpedoed. He didn't know about that. I mean, it changed his life uh, profoundly afterwards, mentally. Mm. Um, you don't know, you don't know these things, like you say. Uh, and B.B. Uh, King, you know, whom I've loved for, yeah. forever. I was um, on the plane and went, my agent in Los Angeles was waiting outside in the car to pick me up, doing some gigs there. And I'm walking down that long corridor when you get off the plane from New Zealand and um, I see this almost like black, kind of um, deep sea, undulating body moving <laughs> towards me. 
about 80 meters in front coming towards me and there's this tall almost stick-like figure standing next to it walking these two guys and as it gets now they go, oh fuck, it's BB King and as he sees me with my guitar case when you could take your guitar on the plane it was those days he went my, 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 I have not seen an afro like that since 1969. Where from, my son? <laughs> looked at the guitar case and his, his mate who was carrying his clothing over one hand yeah. just had a staunch face like this. Yeah, yeah. I said, oh, Mr. King, I'm, I'm from New Zealand and I'm coming here to play some gigs. He said, my, and we had a, a brief chat. He wished me well. And uh, off we went. And then, years later, when you came to the concert, yeah. I'm opening up for the guy. Yeah, up in Auckland. Up in Auckland at the Civic. Yeah. Backstage, he's in a wheelchair to, to rest. He's, yes, he's, this is only three or four years that's before right. he passes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm backstage, the lighting wasn't so good. And I stood over him like this. And I said, Mr. King, remember me? And he, he put his arms around him and started kissing me on the lips. He thought I was a woman. <laughs> Getting quite emotional and yeah. very touchy about it, and um, I said, "No, no, the Afro in LA, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, the bit hit him, you know." Yeah, I just opened up for the guy, not that he yeah, heard it. Yeah, and then I opened up for him in uh, Italy, the Pistoia Blues Festival, a couple of years ago, uh, and then he he was really more infirm then; he was yeah. more wheelchair bound, and we had a brief talk, but not much. No, he no. Was, I mean that was. That concert in Auckland was interesting because uh, quite a few people and I thought it unreal had an unrealistic expectation around it. Like I talked to quite a few people afterwards, or they read what I wrote about it. And they were like, "Gosh, you were way too gushy about him. It wasn't very good." And I was like, "Well, you know, you were going to BB King in 2010 or 12 or whatever it was. You're not, mm -hmm. you know, 2012. You're not going to BB King in 1967 or 1974. That's right. Or even 1989. That's right. You know, and when you get to that age, yeah. there's a big difference between, you know, there's a, an enormous difference between 80 and 82, right. you know, in, a, in, right. in, in your years. That's right. Whereas a person's playing might stay exactly the same between 50 and 60 or 65, but mm -hmm. 80 and 81 is a big yeah. You know, it's a big, big yeah. ask and a big. Yeah, it is a big ask. I thought as soon as he touched the guitar, as soon as he made a note, it was like, wow, mm. no one else is doing that. That's that is right. BB King. That's that's, right. that's that sound I yeah. like you, like so many people. That's that sound I grew up with. It was distinctive. It was instant. I thought yeah. his band was up incredible, and he still had uh, some. It was obviously hugely diminished, but he still had the characters and quality and some of the power of that voice yeah. which for a guy who was yeah, essentially wheelchair bound that's right certainly seated the that's whole right. time and really didn't appear to know exactly where he was there was enough to get that show across the line i think yeah absolutely true and i think his internal motor his spirit mm. was one of love and still had that give element but also you're going yeah. to you're going to a show then hopefully to essentially pay your respects, to see mm -hmm. someone off, to you're going to to mark the fandom that you possess. You know, you're not yeah. going to see the greatest hits, the new album, right. to to see him really come yeah. alive. Those days have gone. Yeah. Like he's done all that, he's and you're that. you're going because he's done all that, yeah. and that's meant something to you. Yeah. yeah, you know. And I sort of feel like, and we well said. Well, we live in an age and an era where that's all at our fingertips. We can find that out. We can find out the the health of someone before. Yeah we can actually find out their set list before That's they right. play it. That's so, right. like, the audience should be doing a little bit of work. 
mm-hmm. you know, like for something like that too, they should go in a little yes. bit prepared. Yeah. But so, so to me, I mean, we drove um, there and back from Hawke's Bay for that show. We didn't even stay the night. We wow. turned around straight after. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Ben and I, we drove straight back to, and so it was a big day. <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous but it was you know we've and we we talked about it a lot on the way back going you know originally it was like was it worth it or was mm. it not you know we you know you you delivered quite a fiery set at that i thought yeah you I seemed felt, i you was s- in a fiery mood you were you were you seemed um and, uh, as a listener in a good way i mean we both we we knew you so we were kind of like analyzing it maybe a little bit more than anyone else and going well this is different but it was good but the response was good from yeah you know from people yeah. was the sound good yeah it sounded great good only yeah. show i think i've ever been to in that venue it was yeah. great civic a eh? yeah it was really good yeah, yeah. so you've had these yes yeah, so you've had these amazing experiences where you've i guess got to meet your heroes and, yeah. and as you know everyone knows that can yeah. be problematic but you've also got to 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 work for them, work in front of them. Yes. Work, you know, work just, just, just to be a musician who gets to work is one thing, right? <laughs> but it to is. be able to get to, absolutely. absolutely. I've always sort of thought talking to you that you have the right sort of attitude around, around that too. That you've, you've, you've picked up some quite neat stories from getting to do some of these shows. Yeah. But I, kind of, um, I take more of a philo- philosophic stance yeah. about now nowadays uh, who I am what I've done where I'm still trying to get to all this stuff and along the way I, in retrospect I, I look at scenarios and Laura Jones tour and that you know mega seven massive awards and that first album yeah. of hers and this it was really highlight stuff and, and this and that it was quite interesting because like um, they were great gigs for me but um it was as if I didn't exist. Uh, I don't mean with Nora Jones, I mean in New Zealand press. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was really weird. And then someone again picked up on that and said, you know, I find it really strange about you, Mr. Rubana Jones. You do all these uh, gigs where you're connected with big names, yeah, successful artists. Yeah. How come you're not, you're not really, um, you know, highlighted yourself? And I kind of sat down a lot and thought about that. I still have no answers, mm. you know, mm. I still have no answers. Uh, for me, New Zealand's been extremely embracing, but what I've noticed about the last few years, da, 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 mm. it's become very ageist yes. in the music industry. Yeah. It likes the young people. Yeah, it does. That's fine. Yeah. The f- funny thing about America is it reveres its elderly players. Yes. You know. yeah. New Zealand maybe is a young country, so maybe that's going that's gonna, to... It, I think it's probably more, more simple than that... Uh, too though I think you know the what's left of the industry around the music industry you know they can't sell albums now so with young people they can sell cosmetics they can sell phones they can you know everything's for sale and it's about having a brand that's attached you know an image that's attached to a brand and it's about you know still you know it's about YouTube hits so if you have young good-looking people making videos other young kids go and watch them, click on them, share them sure, about. And, sure. you know, that's, I think it's probably that as much as anything. It certainly is. I'm very philo- philosophic about it. And Facebook is, is good in as much as, um, you know, people at least put their, oh, that touched me, you've touched me since this amount of years, mm. and blah, blah, blah. They're the positivities yeah, that, yeah. that exist within this new framework yeah, yeah. of how it's morphed. And well, that's, that's what, I, what I like about, I mean, 
what what we should talk a bit about too is is uh, you know it's not like I've just picked a few highlights of some international people you've worked with. It's not like you've been hanging around trying to get those. In most cases, those shows have come to you. Yeah. Like you you obviously you know through an agent or whatever you're trying to get work, and and some of those shows have been very good. But you're constantly playing your own shows. It's not like you're looking for the next international act to open for. No, no. You're no. constantly playing your own shows, and then I think over the last. 10 years particularly you know you've you've created a series of different shows so you've done the things like you've you did a really great show at Downstage Theatre a few years ago where you sort of paid tribute to the influences so you actually whereas all of your shows I've seen there's always at least one or two covers of there but this was a more overt these are songs I grew up learning these are the songs that helped me to cope with the world let alone write songs and perform these are right. songs that are very special to me as I say you've got those songs both covers and originals and I think like how enduring so many of your original songs are that must be quite um, special to you that to, to think that a song you wrote 25 years ago is still very much alive without radio play because yeah. it's like you haven't really yeah courted that or yes. or been supported by that yeah. um, it just lives and breathes live some of them are recorded there are recorded versions of them but but really they just you know sing out live and people if you don't play them people ask for them yeah that must be pretty heartening it is very heartening um, I never thought it would be like that and also when I think about it it's what people say I've had many texts and blah blah blahs commentaries be them written or spoken where people have said, I've seen you play that tune since 1987. Yeah. Hundreds of times or whatever, and it's never been the same. Mm. So by that, I guess they mean there's a freshness that's brought into it. I don't know. Um, and I kind of think of myself like that, you know, that I don't feel like, um, well, that was written like that. That was that particular part of my life. Mm. Um, so... I have to leave it. It's still very much um, alive. You could easily resurrect a song and kiss it and bring that life back. Have there been ones where you've had to let them go? Oh, like, yeah. this doesn't speak to me anymore, this doesn't, yeah, you know, whatever. Doesn't it doesn't work. I, don't, I just don't feel no, it. Or, yeah, an audience, or even an audience doesn't feel it, whatever. I don't know if that's... Me first, I think. I'd say so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Me first. And that, yeah, there have been, yeah. inevitably. Songs that would hope would have worked, but doesn't really go anymore. I like the, I don't know if this has ever been your, uh, where I'm, if I'm putting words into your mouth here, but I sort of like the, what I've got from your shows is the idea that, um, I, you know, a lot of people will sort of push their own barrow as desperate to be a songwriter. I think your shows sort of speak to the idea of music as a spirit and something you put across and if it happens to be a song you've written yeah, great with right. it, but 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 that's just as valid if it's a song someone else has written oh absolutely yeah i think um uh, i think an important part of my history has been interpretation yeah you know? i think so you know you you read a lot you go and see a lot of movies you know, the art galleries and all this and it requires you to be able to go into something to get the maximal out of it and it's the same with a song I love that. I love that blowing in the wind. I love this or that. Mm. And um, but if I do do it, I'm gonna put the spin on it, where I've entered into the heart of it, and I'm reading it from within in my manner. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's yeah. an integral part. Of and and another thing we should talk about, perhaps too. I think uh, again, it might be something that people don't know about you. 
Um, although I think probably your your fans that come to your shows again and again do know this, um, is that you've continued to play quite a role in music as an educator. You've, oh, yeah. You know, you've, you're still learning yourself, you've, yes. you know, as a student who lives on stage, but you've gone back and done more study, but you've also done a lot of teaching. I, I, I enjoy that. I've been... Workshops. Yes, absolutely. You know, Singer, yeah. songwriting workshops, rhythm workshops, yeah. uh, history of music workshops that are more aligned with literature, per se, yeah. Yeah. to get young kids reading, like yeah. reading classics. Mm. It's, a, it's a real... It's a real sad indictment that on a lot of university campuses, because of money and funding, you know, mm. classics get shut down. Mm. And uh, other, hello, he's a big one, isn't he? Yeah. Um, other ones, um, you know, go forth, IT and all this stuff. And, you know, the it, history of art, history of music, history of this. It's an, it's, it, somebody made a really great analogy the other day, like oh, there's all these windows in the house uh, of all different subjects, they, each window is represents a different room. Mm. Each room represents a different subject, you know, at varsity, and um, they will only exist if the basement of that house, the, the the basic structure of that house, is built on really solid foundations. Otherwise, mm. they'll fall apart. That makes sense. But that the analogy was here within that basement lies the history of humanity, philosophy, all those things that tell us who we were at a particular time and where we've arrived at. Cicero, Plato, Shakespeare, um, you know, Baudelaire, all French art, uh, modern art and this. But these are the subjects that are getting axed in universities yeah, yeah. worldwide. Yeah, yeah. Worldwide, and that's a grave pity because yeah. these are the subjects that could tell us who we are, where we've come from in more depth. Well, don't you worry that, that they... Um, the people that make the rules and the people that pull the strings of the people that make the rules don't you just worry that they um, want us all to be a bit dumber yeah you know? absolutely yeah. I don't want to sound too tinfoil hat about it but no, you know no, no. like that's that's sort of the it, worrying thing behind it it is a worrying it? thing yeah it is a real worrying thing and so and so in relation to uh, my my yeah. journey Going into high schools, uh, be them um, top-notch high schools or the ones that are struggling to get X amount of pencils on the table, mm. they get uh, singer-songwriting workshops, you know. Mm. Let's all write a song together. Or this is the stuff that influenced me. So, you know, on the, on the whiteboard, up goes the whole paragraph of X amount of songs and we look at one song and uh, we break it down and we, we do points of relativity where these lines were written what was happening outside on the street socially what was going on for black people or North American Indians what was going on uh, with the police in relation to black people in southeast London um, so they get this sense of history which is an indelible part of great songs you know that you put into song form they get the sense of rhythm you know, I, I use these analogies like when you're cross-eyed like this, you see the world slightly differently. Mm. And that is, and when you go back into normal vision, that is how close cultural rhythms are. Celtic rhythms, Arabic rhythms, African rhythms. You just need to cross your eyes slightly and you're in another culture. Yet they're all coming out of the same pair of eyes. Mm. You know, things like this. And kids go away and they think, wow, yeah. 
Recently I did a concert in Palmerston North High School a couple of weeks ago, lunch hour gig, and I was playing in Palmerston North that evening a gig. Mm. So they're all in the auditorium, it was full, there were 300 kids there, uh, Palmerston North Boys High, lots of them are doing music, and so I'm playing these tunes, and in between I'm talking because I didn't just want it to be a concert and have to sit there. Yeah. So I said, so who's playing bass? Who would like to be a bassist? Who's working on their instrument? Anybody? playing piano in the jazz band and suddenly this interaction was going on and, it, and the music teacher didn't expect that the one that booked me and he loved it mm. I really like that you know it's important to what's it like playing the schools these days they still get into the spirit of the songs that you're putting across they don't expect you to play like Katy Perry songs you don't have to go and do oh you do get some funny <laughs> yeah. requests like that yeah. but more often than not I've done most of the schools before and they've yeah. still got the same same heads of music. So they're prepared the, they are. They're, they're preparing the kids and so that's right. for what to get. That's they, right. yeah. that, those those teachers are part of your audience. Yeah, yeah. Very much so. Yeah. And and also that's an indication that, you know, mm. at least some teachers are trying to do something. Exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the the other thing you've done too is apart from opening for international acts a lot, you've you've ended up on the bill with You've got some sort of lasting connections with people like Gary McCormick, um, you and Gary and Sam. You've done these shows, having gamble. gamble. Yeah, right. exactly. So, um, I mean, some of these are connections that go back 30 years now. That's right. Plus, yeah, yeah. I still see Gary. I, yeah. I don't see Sam uh, Hunt much. Uh, Hammond Gamble. Sam's in hiding, I think, way yeah. up north now, isn't he? Hammond Gamble's yeah. hung up his spurs. He's, yeah. he's busy um, doing world tours on cruise ships. Him right. and his wife. Right. <laughs> They're like holiday and all over the world. Good on him. I mean, yeah, he's, he's got grandkids. He's, he's done his work. Yeah, yeah. So I do see him sometimes, yeah, but yeah. not that often. Yeah, yeah. And do you feel like that? Like, do you do you think like there's a time when I won't be doing this, or do you not? You know, like because uh, I feel I feel like you you work hard around the country. You you know I know I know you've dialed back the amount that you actually yeah. go right around the country and. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about those insane days because sure. I feel like <laughs> there have been times when you just you must have driven everywhere yeah. around this country Silly drives, yeah. and 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 at old cars yeah. at, at all hours and all of that sort of That's stuff. Right. Okay, get that. That's bugging me. I'll let him out. Yeah, I've got him. He's oh. still alive. Hang on. There we go. There you go. There he goes. Um, he needs a bit of. There it goes. So, um, but yeah, I feel like you've kind of calmed down the amount you go right around the country. Yeah. Well, maybe that's been the request of at the request of others. I don't know yeah. in your life, but you do you are you starting to contemplate throttling right back on performing or uh, no? no, you, you, no can still, you you're still I, into it. You still get stuff from it. I do. I get a lot from it. I, yeah. I'm 65 in August. Uh, in you know half a year away or whatever yeah. it is so I kind of see myself if I'm in the state of mind physically and mentally where I'm at now uh, I'll have a rain check when I'm 70 I reckon I've got five years left to yeah. still peruse the world doing this and that still perusing schools um, doing this and that and um, yeah and still pouring out my energies and passion on stages uh, for another five years and then I'll have a look, 70, I'll have a look, see where I'm at physically, mentally, mm. creativity. Well, how do you uh, look after your mental health doing what you're doing? Because I'm thinking, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, but I'm thinking like, you know, you've done a lot of, 
a lot what I just said you've done a lot of long drives on your own yes like sometimes you've done them with people like opening acts that you've done tours together with or you're sharing the bill but you've done a lot of travel on your own I have yeah over the years it doesn't I, I think I'm dealing with it re- I've, or I've dealt with it reasonably well given some of the circumstances mm. I like reading on the road mm. I always have a good book with me I like watching good movies on the road and I like meeting people on the road, like yeah. talking to people mm. and um, and walking around towns just to see what's going on, mm. walk into a shop and I end up in the conversation. Not about me necessarily, mm. finding out who these people are. Yeah. And that's quintessential to why we're here anyway, yeah. be yeah. you a musician or a dustman, you know. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and an and, and an Afro and an accent That's probably right. has helped it helps in red some dot, of those situations. Yeah, yeah, in some of those situations. It's and a, a guitar case. That's and, you right. know, like, all that stuff. All yeah. the usual stuff. Yeah. Beyond that, you know, just that ground base of human connection. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, and, and, and as much as I know you, I feel like you've dealt with that really well, but I'm just thinking like it must be something to be aware of and then particularly as you grow older with it because because your patience and your tolerance can wind down around certain situations and then you're still stuck with the the physicality like people forget the physicality of travel when you're touring Mm -hmm. that it actually really does can beat you up can't it yeah exactly and you know you always get people say Oh, I don't know why musicians moan about touring. Like they get to sit around all day and then do their tour, you know. And it's like, not only is that not how it is, but also even if that was how it is, that can be quite grueling and taxing. And then there's the idea that people probably think you're making far more, far you bit more money from it than you actually are. With, you know, with certain musicians, like that. You know, there's all of that, isn't yeah, there? There's like, all of that. You know, Kareen, my wife, very switched on woman. And she says to me, um, important is, Paul, is to know when to stop, you know. Yeah. You know, like, uh, you know, we've seen musicians that haven't known when, or actors, oh, yeah. when to stop, you know, yeah. theatre and music, performing mm. arts per se, generally. Mm. And um, and that's important. And I'll always be aware of that. When I can't cut the mustard anymore, or when, it, when things, for whatever reason, have been uh, reduced to mediocrity, that's the time to get out. The subject matter of a lot of your songs that, again, that you both cover and write is very much something that is kind of malleable with the time. Like, you know, not only can you musically rearrange them or you deliver them in a slightly different Mm. way, but these are kind of like long-lasting universal themes in most cases, aren't they? So so there's that too. So they're either... Mm-hmm. Flexible or just always forever relevant. Yeah. By the way, yeah, and you that, get that's help. That's helpful though. I mean, it is helpful. No, you don't want to be a forty or a fifty or a sixty-year-old singing teenage songs. No, no, no. Know, way. Which that's some right. people get caught. Yeah, do they? Because they believe that's the only way they can hang on. Uh, it's just keeping that relevance, that 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 line of relevance in who you are, what you do, and taking it where it do still would be relevant. Me? You know. Uh, that's important, eh? Yeah. You know, you're going out to places and um, you, 
there's a sense in Ten Eye goes up that oh, well, I'll never do that gig again, you know, because it was the wrong place, wrong venue. Mm. And your antenna antenna gets tuned to such an extent, you have a better sense of where to go and play, you know, in this uh, or scrub. Yeah, you must know most of the good rooms in this country to yeah. work on. And there are new ones coming yeah, up yeah, as well, yeah. so I'm always on the lookout. But in for terms that. of the mainstays, like you must have been to, you know, all those classic Pinkwood Club and That's you know right. all those sorts still, of still yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Opera House in Omaru I, I do mm. and I, do, I recently did the Penguin Club that mm. was the last gig I did mm. in Omaru the Penguin Club and, and the gigs prior to that were in the Opera House you know they've got mm. a 200 seater room and, mm. you know, and it's great stacked um, kind of seating mm. great seating and that's a nice place I took an all Dylan show there one night and mm. you could hear a pin drop Mm. I spoke about the tunes in between, mm. so that was great. Mm. And so, and the uh, the Penguin Club totally different. Yeah, even more of all original uh, Ubana stuff. That's and and um, you see an all Dylan thing. Are you still thinking of? Are there people like that that you'd like to do? Yeah. You know, other are there other shows that you're thinking of I'd doing? Like, I'd like to uh, see see if I can develop the possibility of working with a big band to yeah. do some real classic stuff. Uh, I'd like mm. to do that. Mm. Feature some guitar, but mainly mm. vocals. Mm. But we'll see if that can develop. What about realistic. what about the opposite? You know, like Dylan used to have this thing, and I always thought it was just a joke. But you never know with him, which is part of what's so wonderful that that he wanted to record an all instrumental album. But uh, working entirely instrumentally is that something that's definitely you know because it's clearly still a possibility oh, for you. Definitely, maybe instrumentals with it. I mean, I've heard, I was going to say there was a film a few years ago that used your music for the for the that you that you scored the map. The Matt reading. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it worked so well. Like It did work well. Yeah. It had some... I don't know how good the film was and how well the film was received. I thought it was okay. It was okay. Yeah. I thought but it was I thought a learning your curve music, for everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But your music really worked as score, yeah. I thought. Yeah. It's, yeah. I'd like to do more situations like that. And um, certainly do an instrumental album, you know, with, mm, mm. with uh, some real fine guitar pieces, maybe incorporating some string works yeah. as well with it. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff I still wish to cover. Um, it's kind of endless. I, I don't think there's a dearth of parameters I'd like to try and, uh, mm. you know, sort of... I guess with all, with. with all things, it's about... Um, I mean, one one big valid reason for doing it in the first place is about just having your creative outlet, just just doing yeah. something that you yeah. feel is worth doing. But, but it also does, uh, on a practical level become about making sure there's an audience for it right like, that's right and some of these things we're talking about now they possibly are things you could do if the grind of touring became too much you could sit and, and you're saying like i'll do it till i'm 70 and yeah. then see but at 70 that might be the time to go that's i'm right. going to do an instrumental album. That's right. i don't have to tour it but yeah. i'm going to put my energies into that yeah. so there's all those kind of things very true i like i was around uh rian sheehan's house uh, yeah. a couple of months ago and um no, he showed me his studio. Oh, isn't it? Amazing. Oh, yeah, it's great. He's a great guy, yeah. as you well know, a great composer yeah. as well. Yeah. And I thought, when I was driving away from there, I thought, now, why didn't I get some of that together? Yeah. I mean, I don't mean the, what he writes. I mean, just the way he's structured his life. Yes, yes. He doesn't have to go on the road. He can do it all from his, his yeah. studio at home. Yeah. And I've never done that, you know, yeah. my own studio at home. So maybe that's something to work on later if the money's there. Yeah, you know. yeah. We'll see. But yeah. I t 
totally admire him and respect his his uh, compositional skills. Are yeah, yeah. Great. No, he's great, as you say, good. And uh, and again with him, like this, uh, because of this sort of area he's working in now. There's a lot of people that listen to his music and don't know that he. He's a pretty fine guitar player. Oh, and, yeah. cer- and certainly that's where he came from. Because oh, yeah, yeah. it's not that noticeable on his recordings now, right. like as he's moving towards more yeah. more and more orchestral that's composition. Right. But it's on those early yeah. recordings of his. But yeah. that's right. He was around here, uh, uh, oh, it was a few years ago now, but he was around here playing my battered old acoustic guitar and made it sound better than it ever yeah. had, you know. And he, was, right. and he was playing Tuck and Patty and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Lovely. So he's yeah. got all those, he's, yeah. all of those things are still there for him to recall uh, via, uh, we, uh, I had an agent in uh, a different agent a Kiwi agent based in Western Australia who also liked Rian's music she was getting me work and she got mm. Rian and Jolly on yeah, the yeah. tour in WA yeah. and he was playing a lot of acoustic guitar yeah there. Toby Emmanuel all that kind of stuff yeah, yeah back great. then oh he's diverse man he's yeah. great yeah and um, it's, and, well, you know you've made these you've made these good connections with those people, I guess, like a generation younger than you, mm. like you know, um, uh, Ben Fulton's obviously a good example. Yes. You guys have done a bunch of stuff together, yeah. and he's he's a good friend of mine, and, and I've talked to him on the podcast. But he's, you guys have done. I think you like really assisted with him when he was trying to pursue the solo singer songwriter thing. Yeah, and then that's right. But Ben Ben is one of those guys for me. He's, he's got. A, wider spectrum to pull yes. on he's, he's, he's so well he's a bit of a renaissance man mm. in, in the music uh, mm. world isn't he absolutely his abilities to create an electronica yeah and the, the, his business yeah and his uh, playing ability yeah and his comprehension of the wider picture he's, he's great Ben but so you guys have worked together a lot, you know. He's yeah. done, you've done shared tours. You've done. Yes. He's opened for you. You've done. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to be doing something tonight. Yeah. So he's he's going to be doing something very different. Yes. Than, than, than what he's done in the past. Don't be great. Um, and so, what else sticks out as highlights for you? What else are you? You know, I was thinking like your your son plays. Um, a very different sort of music to you. It does, uh, metal, death metal. Uh, and it's pretty fantastic what I've heard of it. Have you listened to it? Yeah, I have. We, we saw him live. We, we, How was mouth, that? We were blown away. Yeah. We were up, raised up in this on this mezzanine mm. in a club in Christchurch, and uh, it was about three years ago, mm. possibly four now, three-ish, and we were blown away, and the people in the audience were saying, "Oh, he's different to his dad, isn't he?" So that was <laughs> well, nice. you could get more different, That's which is right. great because I always think, like, uh, you know, um, a lot of people who, you know, like we think of like famous musicians and their son or daughters, but particularly sons, follow in their path and they end down. up having having that kind of copycat, That's and right. it's never as good. I mean, uh, the the good example recently is is. Uh, Leonard Cohen's son, Adam Cohen, he made a record a few years ago that was really good, better than his other ones, but it just sounded so much like Leonard Cohen. You would go, like, of of all the people to try and copy, you'd never want to do that. (laughs) And so then he he actually produced Leonard's last album, the one that just came out just before he died, and and he did an amazing job because clearly he'd grown up studying his father's music, you know, as well as being influenced by it. 
But I thought, like, now that's going to be it, and he's just going to be a spokesperson for his father's career now, which maybe works Leonard Carr, that's not such a bad thing to be. But he's going to lose any sense of his own identity through that, whereas, um, you know, your boys don't work working in a different sphere. So is he the only one of the children that's really actively taken to music? Oh, yeah, the others all sing and play. Right. uh, Aisha used to play the violin. Yeah. Um, Doesn't anymore. Shadi used to play the flute and did really well on that. It doesn't anymore because of her lifestyle and work now, as with Aisha. Sonora, the youngest, plays good guitar, but yeah. doesn't really do it enough to do get anything it with it. Yeah, but yeah. She's very good. Yeah. Um, and Okoy, you know, he, he made a conscious decision to go back to Zurich, where he was born, and pursue his music that initiated was initiated here in New Zealand. Mm. And um, yeah, good on him, and he's tours the world. I mean, yeah, he's he's just done a big tour of South America. He does so many countries, mm. and also on his new album, he's featured my introduction that I used on a change of season to George Gershwin Summertime. Mm. He's used that. It, well, he's done a version of that, right, right, to begin one of his tunes. Okay, it goes into so this just warm yeah, sound. right, and the response he got from it, the response, positive response, was phenomenal, and quite a bit of negativity but yeah. generally great positivity well polarizing's not so bad you know it's a better than better than people not knowing what to think yeah you sure. know better to have yeah people in both camps rather than absolutely not at all you know absolutely so he's into it and yeah enjoying his life there cool and, uh, still a duo you know he plays seven yeah. tr- string electric and the drummer yeah yeah um anything else you want to anything else we need to cover anything else you want to no said all that was needed to be said only that um let's see what's happening he's back again he's back yeah he loves it um no simon i feel happy with what we've spoken about i think that's all good um i wish i'd known my father more because he um he had a strange life he left home he was married in africa mm and had a child which my mother never knew about right and it turned out that my mother was married beforehand whether she had children we don't know but she was married before when did you how did you oh get your head around those oh, two we, things like my, when did um, you find that out my middle brother Ocon, who's the um actor and has been for, uh, as long as i've been a professional musician he um he scored some gigs with a, a nigerian advertising agency for beer and Japanese motorbikes, mm. funny correlation, which in turn meant to be shot in Nigeria and Lagos in Nigeria yeah. for a couple of weeks, yeah. uh, doing all these ads for Nigerian TV. Japanese motorbikes, hand with a can of Nigerian beer, all these yeah. shots. And in that space of time, he knew basics about where my dad was from, he knew all that stuff. So yeah. he ventured out to Cross River States. Yeah. And he got these gigs going on five, four or five different occasions for the same advertising agency and the same Japanese motorbike company. So they paid for fares and everything. And over that period of time, he recorded uh, relatives of my dad on mm. cassette, took photos and all this stuff, and met my dad's son, who was basically in his late 80s, and this was wow. 15 yeah. years ago. Yeah, wow. So, all that came about, all the knowledge and the awarenesses of that. We only knew little snippets and the kind of 
the kind of life he led. He remained, Ill he remained illiterate in the UK. His English wasn't good. Um, he never really had that lust for communicating with English society. Mm. Um, his African friends, he would take me as a young boy over to meet them. And my mother didn't really connect with his African friends. So there was all this kind of backdrop of silence and hurt, denial, secrets, mm. and slowly, slowly being uncovered over the years. Mm. Now, my eldest brother had a son who's been really entrenched in the roots of his roots. And he found out that my mother was married before um, in Yorkshire and all this stuff mm. and this whole world of denial and trying to make base with my mother's wow. relatives they don't want to know shut off completely. how how long did your did your parents live in your lifetime like when you know how long my dad died when I was 16 yeah so he died in 1968 my mother died when I recorded um, a change of season, so I dedicated that album to her, which was 1992-ish. Yeah, that's... 93. Yeah, right. Okay. And so, wow, so you only just found that stuff out? All last, recently, yeah. over the last yeah. couple of years. Wow. And I wished all that had been settled. Yes. Settled in my my roots background, but it, it hadn't been. There was, you know, they got together, a black guy, before the Second World War, oh, during it, he was in the Navy. Afterwards, 50s racism, you know, mm. right-wing, National Front, all that stuff. He used to go to work with a big knife in his bag because there was still a lot of drunks out on the street if he started early work, early hours in the morning, you know, wow. so he had to protect himself. Yeah. All this stuff, and then you kind of wonder why he put up with all that. Yeah, yeah, know? exactly. And the fact that my mum and dad, they're three boys, they went through all that crap. You would have thought the last thing was to shut down their history, you know, mm, mm. you know, impart it to your mm, kids, you know. Mm, they didn't do it. So, so that, that's, a, that's a sad regret. But fortunately, we're catching up on some of it. Yeah, and I guess um, you have... Uh, probably makes you think about this, but you you probably think about uh, how much you have been there and, and continue to be there for your kids, and and I imagine oh, yeah. um, and and the little that I know about you know your your relationships with with your wife and your children, you haven't really kept anything from them. Quite the opposite, they yeah. they're aware of as best where, as I could have. They're yeah. aware of, of where they come from. And, absolutely, absolutely, they know their roots. And mm. my brother in France who's been there four or five times, his kids very much know their roots. Mm. And, uh, at least us two have done the best we can. Mm. The eldest brother is another entity. He's, um, he's had a few issues. He's intrinsically a, a good person, but he's, he's, not, he's not that well, you know, mentally. He's drugs, too many drugs. Mm. He was on tour with David Bowie and the road crew. Uh, Diamond Dogs tour of the States. He had that mad life for quite a wow. long time. Yeah. And he's a very talented chef and had great talents and woodwork. Extremely creative person, but stairs. Yeah. So that's a pity. Yeah. So there's a few ish, a few chapters in my book of life so far that I wish had panned out with better harmonic resolution. But I guess everyone's got that. Do you think you'll write some version of your life story down? In, in prose, or do you think you're doing that in your songs? 
Um, no, I'll do it in prose as well. You, you think you will? I have done it in songs. Yeah. I've mentioned... I've only touched tips of it in yes. songs. Africa, the sunburnt zone. Yeah. Uh, Rest in my arms. Um, things like this. Mm. Uh, Counting on love. Um, Lust for life is a, yeah, is, yeah. is a big one, I think. Yeah. Like in terms of... Um, just putting across a sort of philosophy as much a philosoph- you know philosophical yes. stance as much very as true yeah. I think I'd like to maybe document it in a prose fashion yeah I will do yeah, whilst the old marbles are still working in the days of my past 20 years or more I turned through many a deep night to watch a distant river flow to watch it move was my delight at times it spoke of silence With words of sharp degree And then at times it waved to me To come and taste it seed <laughs> Was it the home again? I don't wait, I'll go, 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 go,
I turn the home again. I do wow, good You stand as far away from me as you can, and you ask me why. I do bang, I do